serve a good God. Amen. Amen. I never cease to be amazed at what we participated here at the river. I'm telling you, we're blessed beyond all that we are due here at the river. Just in the word that is delivered unto us here. Amen. Amen. My, my, uh, it's just good. We are, we are in a spirit of revival here at the river, and I am just I am just basking in it. I love the word. I love the the welcome that we give everybody that walks in here. I went back and uh, a gentleman standing in the foyer Sunday morning and. And uh, I saw him, and I talked to him a couple times before. And uh, I went over and said, hey, brother, how are you? And I gave him a hug. And he turned to the lady that was with me. He said, you see, you see? You see what they do here? <laughs> but it, it's not just me. It's, it's that atmosphere of people are not accustomed to that. You know the young man that comes here? Uh, comes to revive a good bit, and he's here in church with uh, Brother Caldwell, uh, Jeff Caldwell. He, he always sits right over here, and he worships. Man, if you knew where God brought him from, you know why he worships like he worships. Because God has brought him from somewhere, from a very, very dark place. And when he's in church, now... About six months ago, they went up to Indiana with, they're trying to get a child back also, and looks like that's going to work. It's, you know, we're doing some things, Revival's done some things, and, and not just us, but th things are moving, and it looks like that's going to happen. But they went up there to, to see the child and to make arrangements and had to be in court. It was Sunday morning. And it, as their custom, they wanted to go to church. So they looked around, and they found the church, and they went to it. And when the music kicked off, Jeff came down here, and he began to worship the way he does it. And the pastor walked off the platform, leaned into his ear, and said, Son, you're a distraction. You see, not everybody knows what we have. I told him, they sent me a message to that, and he was kind of, ooh, you know, I said, son, don't, be, don't let that bother you. Go back over there and pull a David on him. Just strip and dance before the Lord. He didn't do that. 
I could have got the boy in trouble, but that's the way I felt. I was, I was angry when he messaged me that, what had happened to him. Because the people had no idea where this boy had come from. Mm. Woo. Listen, I learned to, all those years that I taught young people, I learned some things. Uh, one of the biggest things I learned, don't ever think that you're on the same page where they're at. Because you're teaching one thing, you're in one room and they got another one. But, uh, over, you know, you've heard of syndromes. Uh, probably one of the most common syndromes you hear, the Stockholm Syndrome, where somebody gets kidnapped and they spend several days, a week, two weeks, a month, whatever it is, and they are, there's something in the mind clicks. They, they feel like the only way they can survive is if they become friends and they begin to like their captor more than the people who are trying to deliver them. It's the Stockholm Syndrome. Well, there's a, there's a reverse syndrome called the Helsinki syndrome, the Helsinki uh, syndrome that it's just opposite. The captor learns to just hate the captor, and the captor starts feeling sorry for the person that he captured, and he starts trying to deliver. You know, I want to get locked up in the Helsinki syndrome spiritually. Now, those are all professional syndromes that have been given to us by uh, psychiatrists. But over the years, I developed a few uh, Stuart syndromes that I saw. <laughs> you know, you, you teach these youngins, and uh, I had one I called the belling, the bell syndrome, the Stuart bell syndrome. You know, when you teach young people especially, and the, the longer I'm living, uh, if you're under 50, you're young. And <laughs> the Belling Syndrome. Young people have always have a bigger and better way to do it than what you're doing. They always got some, they got a, they got a way to do it that'll work better than what you're trying to do. Had a little lady one time, we were pinching pennies and we were trying to get some things done at the church and she decided what we needed to do and she spent a week drawing it all up and painting it and it looked great and come and presented it to us. And man, whew, we were gonna have the Taj Mahal when we got through with her plan. And I said, uh, darling, uh, could I see the expense sheet with this? And she said, oh, I didn't do that. This is just what we need. All right. Well, we might want to look at the other side of that. <laughs> the Bell Syndrome. I got that from a story that the librarian, when I was in the second grade, read to our class. They led us upstairs and set us in the little chairs. And she got out in the middle in front of, the, of this little class. Man, I love people reading to me back then. And she read us a story. Belling the cat. And the mice were having a huge meeting. All the mice had got together, and they were having a meeting. And they were worried about this cat. Some of the mice had gone missing, and they knew it was this cat that was doing it. And they were offering up solutions to the problem of the cat. And they had this 
member of the mice youth group strolled up to the front and said, I have the answer to our problem. We're going to bail the cat. He had a bell in his hand on a string. He said, we're going to tie this bell around the cat's neck, and everywhere the cat goes, we're going to hear him. We're going to know where he's at. That's the solution to our problem. Man, all the young people, man, that is a great idea. We're going to do that. We're going to bail this cat. But an old elder came walking out to the mic with his cane, and he stood at the mic, and he said, it sounds like a good idea. I want to know who's going to bail the cat. The bell syndrome. You have to bring young people back to reality sometimes. You know, maybe the pastor may pull my coattail later and say, don't ever do that again. But uh, I, I got a Conley syndrome. Now, some of you elders here will remember old Earl T. Conley, Earl Thomas Conley. He was a country singer. He didn't make it big until he was 40 years old. But when he made it big, he lasted better part of 20 years, and his first hit song was Holding Her and Loving You. Look, I worked with a guy one time. He'd been married about eight months. You know, I married young. I married at 18. I don't suggest that. It worked for me, but I'm telling you, you'll have to make that work. Look, you know, we courted for three years before we married, and, and after I married her, been married a month, and I'm thinking, Brother Josh, I'm thinking, there's something wrong with this woman. <laughs> you know, after I'd been married a year, I figured it out, Brother Josh. That was a thing. She was female, and I had married a woman. <laughs> so come to terms with that if you get married, because... But anyway, I worked with this little guy, and he'd been married about eight months, and he had two girlfriends stringing on the side. And boy, I was wondering, how in the world and why do you do that? But the Conley syndrome, holding her and loving you. Paul had a worker with him, Demas, who had that syndrome. Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me. Having loved this present world. Mm. Mm. Listen, we're in revival here at the river. And I want you to know something. The thing that scares the devil to death is a church in revival. And if we maintain this revival that we're in, we're going to have to stand a guard. Because I assure you, at this moment in time, the devil is hunting for a way to disrupt our revival. Let me give you some historical precedent here, help you understand this a little bit. Spring 1941, May of 1941, the world was in a real a precarious place. World War II had been underway but right at two years, all of Europe had fallen to the Nazis, and, it, and England was standing alone, 
and all of the supplies that were going to England were crossing, were crossing uh, the Atlantic from the United States and from Canada. And the Germans put the battleship Bismarck to sea to raid the commerce that was crossing the North Atlantic. This huge battleship, if it could get a, if it got amongst those convoys, it could stand at a distance of 25 or 30 miles and sink the whole convoy. And, and they knew it. So England put every ship a sail. We have to find and sink the Bismarck. And whenever they, when they first met up with this ship in the North Atlantic, it immediately, within three minutes, sunk the pride of the English Navy, the HMS Hood. 1,500 men, three men of that ship survived. It was a terrible moment in time. And then they lost the Bismarck out into the sea, into the storm and the fog, and they sent the, the, an aircraft carrier out there and launched its scout planes. Uh, this plane was called, it was a ferry swordfish. Look at that, that's a World War I holdover. The pilots called it a string bag from those wires and strings that you see are holding it together there. And that was, that's, a, that's a holdover from World War I, or it's a, a slightly advanced, but it's basically a World War I biplane. And the Germans laughed at this plane because really against that torpedo you see hanging under it is a tenth the size of regular torpedoes, but that's all the ferry swordfish could carry. So they send out a squadron of these things to find the Bismarck, and if you have a chance, attack it. Now, the Bismarck could have stopped dead in the water, and the squadron could have lined up and launched every one of those torpedoes into the side of the Bismarck, and it would have suffered almost no damage. But one of the last planes making a run into this target, the Bismarck, he launched his torpedo, and he thought he had missed, but he actually put the torpedo right into the tail section under the Bismarck into the rudder housing. And it killed the Bismarck's ability to move forward. Let me tell you what the devil is looking for. He wants to ruin the unity of our church. Now, I'm not afraid of that. I'm just telling you what the devil, he's what he wants to do. He wants to ruin our unity. And if he can, if he can destroy our ability to progress and we start running in circles, the Bismarck one day out of safety and one day out of port, all it could do was run in a big circle because it lost its steering mechanism. The, the might of the English Navy sailed in there and sank her at will. I refuse to allow the devil to put a torpedo in what we have going on here. Mm. Mm. 
title of my, what I'm going to teach here tonight, I, listen, I'm more of a teacher than I am a preacher, and I hope I don't bore you within a, 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 an inch of your life. I'm going to, my title tonight is A Tale of Testimony. My text is Solomon, Song of Solomon 2.15. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. A tale of testimonies. Solomon said it's the little foxes that you have to be mindful of. It's those little things. Listen, I'm not going to leave here tonight on the way home and buy me a, a box of Roy Tans and a fifth of Jack Daniels. I'm not going to do that. It's just not in me to do that. But that's not what the devil's going to offer to me either. When he comes to see me, one of, his, one of the tools that he uses in his box almost above everything else is complacency. Complacency. I could just to come to church to be at church. And listen, I went through that at one time. And and you get caught up in living your life and raising a kid and, and put and trying to put up with a woman. <laughs> now listen, I had a good wife. I'm I should not say those things. I had a good wife. I miss her dearly. But uh, it's, it's the little bitty things that you allow into your Christian or into your spirituality that will eat a cancer into you spiritually. And then you will find that you are in a spirit of decay. Give me Luke 11, 5, 5 through 7. I'm going to read you a, a, a short passage of scripture here that some time ago, some eight or ten years ago, and I think I told you this once before, but I spent the better part of a year, every time I opened my Bible, this is what I read. Because God was pounding something into me out of this, and I thought, I think I finally got all of it, and I wanted to talk to you just a little bit tonight on that. Luke 11 and 5, and he said unto them, this is Jesus speaking, which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a, six, for a friend of mine in his journey is come to me and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, trouble me not, the door is now shut. My children are with me in bed, and I cannot rise and give thee. Now, that passage of Scripture has three principal characters in it, and each one of them has a testimony that they give in that passage of Scripture. The first guy we meet is the traveler at night. Now, this was a time... When you didn't do much traveling at night because it was dangerous. The thieves and the robbers and, and they would take everything you had. And, and if, you, if you got caught out and traveling at night, you could be easily killed and lose all of your possessions. And this guy, whatever he, has, whatever he did, 
He did it wrong, and he wound up having to travel at midnight. And he finally made it into the city. He escaped out of a dark place, and he knew of a friend that he could go to. And now this guy had some knowledge of, of Jewish traditions. He must have been a practicing Jew, but for some reason he allowed himself to be swayed out into the darkness. Now he's back, and he goes to his friend's house, and his friend welcomes him in, but he's not prepared to receive him. Now, in the Jewish tradition, it's called, let me look at this, I'm not real good at Jewish, so I'm going to say it here, Haknaset Okin, and that is, it's taught in the Jewish synagogues as extreme hospitality. You're not just expected to be hospitable to the visitors that come to you, but you're expected to go overboard and be extreme with what you have to offer. Now, he is totally absent in this. You remember in the 18th chapter of, of Genesis when Abraham, it said that Abraham sat in the door of his tent and he was watching the road. Now, that is a midrash, taught as a midrash in the synagogues. And, and, and a midrash is something that they, they have studied and milked everything they can out of that scripture. And what does it mean? And they tell their, their scholars who are studying unto them, Abraham was practicing Hagnasi or king in that he was, God had so blessed him that he was waiting for the opportunity to bless somebody who was passing by. And on this day, it was the Lord himself. He didn't know that when he ran out into the road and stopped them. And he's, this is what he said to them. He said, have a seat here, and I'm going to prepare a morsel for you. And they all, and the Lord and his, the accompanying angels with him, they had a seat. And they said, that's fine, go get us something. And Abraham ran back into the tent where Sarah was. And he said, make haste now and prepare three cakes. Not one, prepare three cakes. And then he ran out to the herd and he found a calf. And he tender, and it says a calf, tender and good. And he brought the calf and he slaughtered the calf. Now, this man is working overtime to entertain strangers because that's what he's commanded to do. You've been blessed by God, you be a blessing. And these strangers who had came by, he is going to bless them. And he prepared, you know the story in 18th in Genesis. Well, this guy in Luke 11 is totally absent the ability to execute the Orkin. His friend has come to him, and he has nothing to offer. But he knows he's supposed to do it.
So that's his testimony. He runs next door and he bangs on the door and says, Would you please lend me some bread? My friend has come to me in his journey and I have nothing to give him. What a, Brother Tenney, what, years and years ago, quoted that scripture and he said, The saddest testimony in the New Testament. A friend has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Now the guy that he goes to and he bangs on the door, you'll meet him in church a lot too. He gets up and he says, I need you to go back home. I got plenty here. I have provided well for myself. I've provided for my family. We're, we have what we need. We don't need you here disturbing us. I've been there. I was there at one time. Leave me alone. I got it put together. I'm doing my thing. Remember the guy that went down to the temple and he prayed the Pharisee? And he went in and the scripture, the scripture said that a little bit strange. It says that he prayed with himself. He prayed with, you know, I told somebody one time, some people, because God asked them to pray, they think God has asked for an audience with them. And they show up in church and they say, God, would you be quick? I've got things to do. What is it that you needed? Hey, that man's testimony was this. I've been blessed and I'm comfortable. I need you to go away. Mm. Look, as you travel through this journey, your, your testimony at times is going to change. And then you need, you know, Paul said that we are epistles known and read of all men. You're an epistle written in our hearts, and you're known and read. Now, you can tell me what your testimony is, and you can give me your testimony, but I'm going to read the, I'm going to, as I watch, oh, I'm saying this backwards, I'm going to tell you, but as I live, you're going to see what my testimony is. Because you are an epistle, and your people are going to read what you do. And what you do is going to speak louder than what you say. David's testimony in the valley was, I have conquered the giant. He was a young man. I can do this. Just give it to me. I'll go do it. And he did it. Faith got him through it. Some 30-odd years later, in the time of war, it says that David sent the army into the field. And he got into a problem he went out and he looked down a couple of houses and there's a lady taking a bath. There's them women. I don't doubt a bit that she didn't know he walked out on that, on that roof in the afternoons. 
Now, he, he, you know all the gyrations. I don't have time to do that whole story. You know all the things that he went through, and he got rid of her husband, and, man, he was just so happy. I, I solved this problem that I had. Come on up here, darling. I'm going to marry you, and this is just going to be a great thing. But the prophet came by and read his epistle. So if your testimony changes, fix it. Fix it. Fix it. That old Pharisee prayed, man, God, I, I pray up here every day. I'm not a heathen like this guy over here. I fast three or four times a week. I pay my tithes. He actually said that. I pay my tithes. I'm giving him my offerings. And uh, he was praying with himself. And he thanked God that he wasn't like that heathen publican with his face to the ground. And the scripture says that all he would do was smite his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Listen, I... Revive is a special ministry, and I love it. I love it. I love working with those people. And to add to what you said, I heard from Charlie yesterday afternoon, and according to Charlie, Brittany's sentence has been reduced to less than four years. And we're still working on that, and, and with some good time, that could get Things could look good, and things are, look, Charlie's living better than I am. And, and, you know, he's not with his family, and I'm sure he wants to be with his family, but he's, Charlie's, he's got, his, he's got the run of, you know Charlie. If you know Charlie, that's just like him. But, but we don't want to be like this guy, the Pharisee who prayed there, and think that the things, the temporal things that I have done, Make me something in the eyes of God. Listen, Brother Shane, Brother Ricky Shane, he preached here last Wednesday night. Man, what a sermon. What a sermon. And in his sermon, he talked about the apple of the eye. And, you know, the, and you're the apple of my eye. Well, let me, I'm going to give you a note for your, for your sermon. I'm not adding to your sermon. Everything you preached was wonderful. But I'm going to give you something to, to think about. In the Hebrew, that word, apple, that they use there, could actually be interpreted as the pupil. And in the, in the world of doctoring on your eyes, some doctors even call the pupil the apple of the eye because it is the mechanisms of the pupil the rods and the cones and, and all of that in, all tied together is what enabled you to see. All of it working together, that is called the apple of the eye. And if I'm the apple of God's eye in that sense, then if God sees it, I'll be the one that has to see it. 
Are you following me? That's it, brother. <laughs> Going back to revive. You know, I love newcomers into a revive service. Their first time. Their first time. Brother, they, when they get in there, they, they begin to wonder, what in God's name? The bikers came here for that first time. They sat right back there. And one of them, when they walked in, and we had the elders up here to sing that night, and he looked at the other one and said, Dear God, it's hee-haw. <laughs> but he was on the phone out, right outside with his wife after service and said, You'll never believe what I've been in tonight. <laughs> You'll never believe what I've been in tonight. They give their testimonies, and their testimonies are a lot like the blind man that was healed at the pool of Siloam. And he went down and he, he was healed. And he's, boy, he's excited about it. And he meets the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, oh, man, what, what, what's, what's with you? Well, he talked Jesus to him, And they said, uh, oh, don't be worshiping him. It's God that healed you. Worship God. We don't know about this guy. And he, he, now you're getting to be smart aleck with him. And he says, well, that's remarkable. I was blind. And now he... He healed me of my blindness, and you haven't even heard of him? Who are you? <laughs> then, look, you read that whole chapter, and those folks, he's just like a revived. He don't know. He don't have a clue what's happened to him. All he knows, and he tells him at the end, I don't know anything about this man, but I do know this. I was blind. <laughs> but now... But now, I see. Woo. And it, listen, you get somebody in here from, with Revive, and they feel the active moving of the Holy Ghost. And you feel that wind of the Spirit move in here. I've seen it happen right here on Sunday mornings, too. Not just Revive. Listen, I'm not just a Revive only. I'm preaching every Thursday night. Come be in church with us because they actually need it. They actually need Sunday morning. They need a bit. They need a pastor in their life. They need a church experience in their life. And the one thing they, they tend to, to get lackadaisical on me is they only come to revive. It's not because I'm not telling them you need church. But they have testimonies that will blow you away. My dear father-in-law wouldn't even... He wouldn't have a water machine and a water fountain in the church. And you just had to dry it out. But uh, I'm so glad I'm in a different day. <laughs> Listen, some of the folks that I was born into this with, they would faint away in a revived service. But listen, hey, I'm, I'm finding, I'm wanting to find people where they are. I feel the hurting. I feel the hurting. Amen, amen. And I'm going to close here. I don't want to go real long here. I'm, I'm closing. I want to say something to the leadership. I'm not pastoring. I just want to say something to the leadership. If you're operating in any form of leadership, I don't care uh, if you're the head cook, uh, Debbie and Patty, or if you... 
look, I got to keep these sisters. You don't, y'all don't know them sisters like I do. So, no, I'm, I listen, I love them. They do such a good job. But, but leadership has its own set of pitfalls. And if you're not careful, you feel like that you've gained a place in the church and in time that I can do what I have a right to do. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm leading this part of the show, and this is what, this is what I'm going to do. You remember Joab? Joab was a nephew of King David. He was the, the, the son of Zeruiah, David's sister. There was three of those boys, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. During the Civil War between David accepting the throne and actually taking the throne, there was a long and bloody civil war between the house of Judah and the house of Benjamin. And the house of Benjamin uh, was where Saul was out of. And Saul's cousin, Abner, led Saul's army. Saul was dead, but he commanded the army that Saul had. And early in that civil war, Abner had killed the brother, the younger brother of Joab, Asahel. And at the end of this long war, David and Abner in their early years had been great friends. And they had loved one another. They had fought battles together. They, but this civil war had driven them apart. Abner woke up one morning and he said, I'm tired of this. And he journeyed to Jerusalem and he met with David and he said, my good friend David, I am here to deliver the house of Benjamin back into the hand of Judah. They, David and Abner ended the war, but Joab wasn't there. And when Joab came to town, you know, there's some people who can't wait to tell some things. There's some folks in the temple or in the palace went out and told uh, Joab, guess who came to town while you was gone? And David has made peace with him, Abner. Joab rose up in himself. He couldn't see the blessing that had been delivered there. By Jewish law and custom, if you killed my brother by the blood, I can kill you legally. So Joab had a right to kill Abner by the law. It was legal, but it wasn't the right thing to do. He followed Abner out to the city of refuge, and I'm going to go into what all that means, but he followed him, called him out of the place of safety, and said, I want to talk to you. And Abner is thinking, oh, here's my old friend Joab. He's come to see me. And because he was in leadership, he pulled his sword and smote him, and he died because he had a right to do it. But the king did not desire it done. It's what the king desires. It's what the king desires. It's what the king desires. I'm going to wrap this up. In the revolt, in the rebellion of Absalom, the same thing 
David has to retreat out into the desert to Mayanaim. And he's living out there and don't know what's going to happen to him. And his son's in revolt against him. And he sends the army out to wrestle with Absalom. And as they're leaving the gate of Mayanaim, David stands in the gate and says, and he says that Joab, deal gently with my son. And he says to Abishai, deal gently with my son. And he says to Itai, whatever you do, deal gently with my, it's my son. I don't want you to hurt my son. Legally, he was treasonous. Absalom was treasonous and could be destroyed. But David, the king said, deal gently with my son. But the young men came into the camp and said, told Joab, we found Absalom. He's hung in the tree out there. Joab said, well, did you kill him? And the young men said, you heard the king as well as I, that we were not to touch him. And Joab cursed, and he said, where is he? And he went, and he thrust the dart through him, and he killed Absalom as he hung in the tree because he had a right legally to do it, but it was not the will of the king. Now, here's the sad part. The young men wouldn't touch him when they found him. But when they saw their leader smite him, the scripture says they too gathered round and smote him. Oh, as we do our parts in this revival as leaders, as we do our part, as we search out the will of God, we want to follow leadership. Some things may go on. Sometimes you don't have a clue what's going on behind the scenes. But the will of the king is what we want to do. Amen, amen, amen. Our testimony needs to be a testimony simple and pure. When I testify, I never want to put myself into a place where my testimony is about me. I want my testimony. The Apostle Paul said, I have but one message. That is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When I pray, I pray, Lord, today let someone see Jesus Christ in me. My sister-in-law used to sing a song, and she's like me getting of age and doesn't sing much anymore, but I... I called her and asked for the words of an old song that she used to sing. Uh, I asked around some of the folks here, and naturally these young people ain't never heard of these songs. But the name of the song is, Does the World See Jesus in You? And it goes something like this. I'm not going to give you the whole song, just a few of the words. This world is looking... For someone to share in their sorrow. Jesus came down to do it. But now he's back in glory. So now, does the world see Jesus in you? When you speak, does the world think of Jesus? When you sing, does Jesus, does Jesus sing too? As you walk... Through this world and its sorrow, does the world 
see Jesus in you. Let's stand. Listen, I commend this church. We practice every service the orkeen of extreme hospitality. We open the doors and we love on people. And we have a wealth of something that they are looking for. And they are searching for it. And they feel it when they walk through the door. We want to hang on to that. We don't want, we don't want to let mediocrity and the little foxes into our existence and destroy what we have here. I intend to go on. We're going down to the river, down to the river, down.